0: So if you've been with us lately, it's been a couple weeks now, several weeks since we've been in the book of Galatians, but that's where we're going to be. Tell me what this is. Pardon? What's that? It's poison. It's poison. Yeah, he was using that North Georgia accent and I kind of lost him there. Why is it? I mean, look at it. It looks like a clear bottle of water. It's It's my daughter's water bottle. She carries water in it most every day. She did until I started using it for this sermon illustration. But <laughs> I mean, it looks just like a bottle of water. It looks like you could just pop this little top here and take a swig and be good. What do we say? We, what did I tell you I'd done to it? I put a drop of arsenic. Actually, it was you food coloring, but arsenic in the bottle. And the lethal dose of arsenic is one drop. So suddenly, this bottle of water that looks like it could refresh you on a hot day, if you've been out in the yard, you'd, you'd be looking for one of these. Suddenly, it became poison. But, you know, you might reason, you might say, but, I mean, I mean, look at the bottle. It's, it's, it's a big bottle. It's one drop of arsenic. I mean, are you really sure that it's poison? Chad, is that not an overstatement of the case? Well, you tell me. Bob, you want a drink? Amy, would you venture it? poison of legalism i've been using this bottle to picture what happens when you take the gospel of 100 pure grace in jesus meaning jesus paid it all you don't pay any you can't pay any you you're not allowed to pay even try to pay any what happens when you mix just a little bit of works with grace Is it still grace? Hello? Is it still grace? It's poison. Now let me ask you this question. You see this thing up here? Some of you may have some of these at home because it was big up here. What is this? Just say it. What is it, huh? It's shine, isn't it? It's moonshine. You know, I googled moonshine and found all these pictures, and there were, like, people in the pictures with bottles and stills. It's afraid to bring those because you're kin to some of them. <laughs> I thought, man, that, wouldn't that be terrible? Like, I mean, if it, people recognized each other's grandparents, and then they got put in jail for moonshine. Anyway, let me ask you a question. This stuff caused a lot of problems in the world, didn't it? This thing is going to be in my way. Sorry, man, but i got to move it or somebody's going to get hurt. Um... Let me ask you, which bottle is more dangerous for the church of Jesus Christ today? Moonshine, whiskey, alcohol, or legalism? John Piper says, legalism is a greater menace to the church than alcoholism. Alcoholics are in a tragic bondage and, make no mistake, we must do all we can to help. Make no mistake, we are not downplaying the severity and the damage and the pain of alcoholism. But legalism is more subtle and more pervasive and, in the end, more destructive. As Satan clothes himself as an angel of light and makes the very commandments of God his base of deceitful operations. He takes God's law and uses it to poison the gospel. We've been talking in the book of Galatians about radical grace. It's the title of our series, Radical Grace, the Only Real you see, if your understanding of, 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 of grace is not radical, if it's not mind-blowing, like if, 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 you have a, if it just kind of is comfortable for you to think about and, and it doesn't shake you up at all, then you probably haven't thought about true biblical grace, the grace taught in the book of Galatians. Peter has laid out the truth of justification by faith alone in the work of Christ alone. Being made right, justification, being declared righteous and right with God by faith alone in the work of Christ alone. What does that mean? That means that I'm made right with God by righteousness that's outside of me. It's found in the person of Jesus. He did it for me. Jesus paid it all. Jesus' righteousness makes me right with God and righteous before a holy God. And it's by faith in him alone and by his righteousness alone that I'm justified. Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. If you want want the core of the message of the book of Galatians, here it is in two verses. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And in case you missed it, because by the works of the law, how many people will be justified? No one will be justified. Now in chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul has been defending this truth of justification alone, by faith alone, in the work of Christ alone. He's been defending this truth from his own experience in verses 1 through 5, and then in verses 6 and following, actually all the way through the end of the chapter, from the Old Testament Scripture. Uh, Two or three weeks ago, when we were last in Galatians, we looked at chapter 3, verses 6 through 14. There, Paul makes it clear that Abraham was justified by faith and that the law only curses us and that only Jesus' death on the cross redeems us from the curse of the law and justifies us before holy God. Now, in our text for this morning, Paul backs up to clarify some things about the law of God. After all, the law was not the creation of the Israelites or of man. God himself gave the law. And as Paul has already made clear, because of the great danger of legalism, we need to clearly and properly understand how the law of God and the promise of God relate to one another so that we don't fall prey To legalism, our time together this morning, I pray, is going to give you a clearer perspective on how the entire Bible goes together. Do you ever wonder how it all fits together? You know, you you may have may maybe new to church or new around the Bible, and, and you, you look in the Old Testament over on the left side of the book, and it's just like, man, I'm not sure what's going on over there. You get over to the right side, and you say, no, that makes a little more sense. How in the world does the right side go with the left? How could it be that the same God of the left side of the Bible, the Old Testament, is the same God in the New Testament? What's going on? How does it all mix uh, or, or come together? And so this morning, I pray that our time is going to give some clarity to that particularly how the Old and New Testaments go together to form one consistent message of salvation to the world through faith in Jesus Christ. And so let's talk about, in Galatians 3, verses 15 to the end of the chapter, how the law serves the promise. That's our our topic for this morning, how the law serves the promise. The take-home for you today is this. God's law drives us to God's promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to unpack this text, and I think that's what you're going to see as we do that. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. It's an awesome Old Testament commentary. We'll look at it later. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later... Does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But if God in His grace gave it to Abraham, but God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed. Jesus, to whom the promise referred, had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Nothing wrong with the law, but scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who do what? To those who believe faith. First of all, I want you to look with me in verses 15 to 18 this morning at the priority of the promise. We're talking about this morning how how the pro, the, the law serves the promise. We're we're thinking about the idea that God's law drives us to God's promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. The first thing I want you to note in verses 15 to 18 is the priority of the promise. You see this particularly in verse 15, the second part of verse 17, verse 18, and also verses 19 and 20. Think with me, first of all, about the nature of of the promise, the nature of the promise. What, the nature, what is the nature of this particular promise to Abraham that Paul refers to? Well, it is a unilateral covenant. Now, most of the time, covenants are between, what, two people, right? And each party has a responsibility, a part to play. But in, in a unilateral covenant, only one party has, is responsible to keep the covenant. And in this case, it's God himself. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15, you don't have to. I'm going to read a passage there quickly. I'm going to read the passage that Paul refers to when he talks about this covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 15, verses 8 through 17, God had made promises to Abraham. He told him he was going to bless the nations through him and through his seed that we read about earlier. He told Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you a land. You're going to go to a place you've never seen. And I'm going to give you a land, and you're going to become a great people. Your family is going to grow into a great nation, and then through that nation, your seed will come, Jesus will come, the Messiah will come, and he'll bless all nations. In verse 8 of Genesis 15, Abr- Abram says, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? That is the land in this particular context. The Lord told him. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, you're thinking, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? What does this list of animals have to do with my simple question, how can I be sure that I'll actually possess the land? Well, Abraham got it right away. What God was about to do, he's saying, bring me the stuff so I can cut a covenant with you. I'm fixing to give you some confidence and assurance that I'll do what I said I'll do. So bring me these animals. So Abram presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came down over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. And then he says... After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. And so God says to Abram, bring me these animals, cut them down the middle, lay out the halves. And so just imagine that. There there are all these goats and sheep and whatever he said to bring, and and he cuts them straight down the middle, and half of a of a goat laying over here, half laying over here, and there's a whole path of dead animals. And God puts Abram to sleep just to make sure he doesn't interfere and mess up this one-way, unilateral, God-to-Abram kind of covenant. While he's asleep, he says, Abram, you can rest assured, there's going to be some other things happening your, in, your, in the history of Israel first, but you can rest assured, I'm going to keep my promise. And here, here is my word to you. And the smoking pot and the, and the flaming torch passed through the parts. The picture was this. It, it was common in that day for even two men to make a, a covenant with one another on, over a piece of land doing this same process. But this time, only God would pass through the parts. And what he was saying is this. If I do not keep my word, may I be like these animals. Abraham, how can you be sure? I'm telling you, I'm I'm, I'm staking the fulfillment of this promise on nothing about you. I'm staking it on myself. I'm staking it on my very being. If I don't do what I said, may I, God, be like these animals. Now, can that happen? Is that even possible? No. And so to the promise already made, Hebrews tells us God puts an oath on top of it. Let me just ask you something. If God tells you something, is he bound to tell you twice? does he really need to repeat himself? I mean, does he have to put it in caps for it to be true or for it to happen? I mean, is it not certain if he just whispers it? Hello? But for our weak faith, God made a promise, and in response to Abraham's question, sealed it with an oath. Not because he needed to, but because I needed him to. You needed him to. You needed a word made more sure, Hebrews says. Praise God for his grace. The nature of the promise. This promise is a unilateral covenant. It's based completely and only on what God would do. And that's why the promise, hear me, that's the first reason the promise has priority over the law. Second, look at the timing of the promise Verses 17 and 18. The law, this text tells us, wasn't given for another 430 years after the promise had been given. 430 years later. Why? I mean, if as the Judaizers, the false teachers there in Galatia were teaching, if keeping the law in addition to trusting God's promise of salvation through Messiah was necessary for salvation, then then wouldn't it have made sense that God would have introduced both the law and the promise side by side? Here it is, 50% promise, 50% law. You need to do both at the same time, and that's how you get there. Would that not have made sense? But he waits 430 years seems clear God allowed his gracious covenant promise to Abraham to stand alone for more than 400 years for the express purpose of making it clear that salvation will be by grace through faith in Messiah alone. The timing of the promise, 430 years before the law. We mentioned this a few weeks ago, but... I dare say you could even back that promise up before the Abrahamic covenant to Genesis 3, verse 15, where God tells the serpent, your seed will will bruise the heel of of, of the woman's seed, but the woman's seed will crush your head. We see that same seed language here in this text, don't we? timing of the promise. Thirdly, this morning, the means of the promise. This just blows my mind. I love this verse. Verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Paul in and giving you a commentary on Genesis 15 says, Scripture and, and others, 12, Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Paul looks back particularly to Genesis 22 verse 18 where God told Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now the Jews of the day and even the Judaizers there in Galatia no doubt took this word seed to be a collective singular and it's used that way oftentimes in the Old Testament. A singular used to speak of the nation. The entirety of the nation of Israel. They believe that simply being Jewish would bring blessing. That through them, all that came from the loins physically of Abraham, the nations would be blessed. But Paul says, no. God meant that the blessing would come through one particular seed, and his name is Jesus, and it'll come through him to all who trust him. We looked a few weeks back, Galatians 3.14 says, He, Jesus, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How is it the promise comes to us? It comes by faith, and it comes through Jesus, the seed of the Galatians 3, verse 29, we'll read this again at the end of the message, but in Galatians 3, verse 29, it says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's powerful. We are the seed of Abraham. We, in a very real sense, are the true Israel of God. We are the fulfillment. The church is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The priority of the promise. Why is it a priority? It's a priority because of its nature. It's a priority because of its timing. It's a priority because of the means of the promise, the fact that it is fulfilled in the seed, Jesus. The priority of the promise. But I do want you to notice this morning in verses 19 to 22, the purpose of the law. Well, if that's true of the promise if it is priority, if it's, if it's superior, if it's earlier, if it's rooted in the work of Jesus, if it's very specific in that, then what is the purpose of the law? If law-keeping law isn't the way to God, then, as verse 19 asks, why then was the law given at all? He tells us. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. By the way, that verse 20, it's contrasting the two kinds of covenants we talked about earlier. And what he's effectively saying there without a lot of time on this is the law is a bilateral covenant has a mediator between two parties. And two parties have responsibility. And it basically went like this. God says, if you obey, I'll bless. Your part's obedience, my part is blessing. If you disobey, I'll curse. And such was the old covenant. But he contrasts that here to the promise. And as he says at the end of the verse, God is one. On the promise side, there's only one party involved. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? God. Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Several things about the law. As we think about the purpose of the law, first of all, notice in verse 19, the law was given for a limited time only. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given for a limited time only. Secondly, in verse 21, the law is good and complementary to the promise. Is the law, Paul asked, therefore, verse 21, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. And what we're going to see in just a minute is the reality that the problem wasn't with the law. The problem was the people trying to obey it. Amen? The problem was not with the standards that God gave or the the expectations of God. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is we cannot keep it. And so therefore it cannot give us life. All it can do is curse us because at every point we will fail. And James says, even if at only one point we failed, we've broken the whole law and the spirit thereof. The law is good and complementary to the promise. Thirdly, the law was given to drive drive the world to Messiah Jesus for salvation. Verse 22 makes that clear. But Scripture has locked up everything, everyone included, under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. What does that mean? It means what we are just talking about. The law says, keep this, do this, be holy. And yet, I'm not holy. You're not holy. Romans 3 says there's none that seeks God. There's no one righteous. No, not one. How does that work? What does that do to you? Well, it causes you to despair and to stand before holy God and realize you're condemned in sin. And apart from a Savior, you have no hope. But it drives you then to the one who died to pay it all for you. To bear the curse of the law against your sin in your place. It drives you to the Savior. The scriptures locked up everything. The law has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Christ, might be given to those who believe. The law makes it so that nobody can earn it, that you have to receive it as a gift. Romans 3, verses 19 and 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. That's what the law does. It's the purpose of the law. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And that's important. We become conscious of our sin. What happened for the 430 years before the law came after the promise and then for however many hundreds of years before the the Abrahamic covenant? Was there sin in the world after the fall of Adam in the garden? Was there sin there? says yes of course there was the law came to make us conscious of our sin every person born after adam every man woman boy and girl were sinners and they sinned there just wasn't a spotlight shining on their sin saying that action is a sin that word you spoke is a sin that intention of your heart is a sin and god's law comes and shines holy light all over our behavior and our thoughts and our actions. We become conscious of our sin. Again, verse 22, Scripture locks us up, uh, has locked everything up under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. There's no other way to get it. You can't earn it. You can't keep the law. And Back in Romans 3, verse 21, Paul says it this way there. But now... What was the purpose of the law? law, Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. In In a way that doesn't involve me keeping God's commandments, there's another way for righteousness to be gotten, to which the law and the prophets testify. By the way, that's a reference to the whole of the Old Testament. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot keep the law, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That is the purpose. Of the law to drive us in desperation before the holiness of God to the grace of God in His Son Jesus Christ and to there cease all work and striving and receive the gift He's given. I just want us to read the rest of this chapter and let Paul's word tie together and wrap up our thoughts this morning. Before the way of faith, verse 23 of Galatians 3. Do you see it? Is it all coming together? Do you, do, do you, do you, have you begun to see this morning how the old covenant and the new covenant go together? Do you understand how the law serves the promise? Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian, verse 24, until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we are no longer we no longer need the law as our guardian. For, you are all children of God through faith in Christ. Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's one way to be saved. And everyone, if they will be saved and receive grace, it will come through faith in Jesus Christ. And now, verse 29, that you belong to Christ. Even we as Gentiles, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to to you if you're in Jesus you know what God's word to you is everlasting blessing and in order for that to be the case there's forgiveness and grace and peace with God so that he can justly and righteously bless you for all of eternity and he's done it in Jesus God's law you see drives us to God's promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you've really never been able to figure the whole deal out. And you, you've known about the Ten Commandments. You've known about the law. You've heard stuff about Jesus, and you, you can't figure out how they go together. And you've just, you've just realized how they go together is this. The Ten Commandments make me understand that I need Jesus, and they send me to his feet to take the gift, the free gift of forgiveness and grace from him. Maybe today's the first day you've ever put all that together. That's the Bible in a nutshell. If this is the first time you've ever understood that, don't wait. Come to him. Run to the Savior. Let the law and and your your unholiness before the holy law of God drive you to Jesus. He's there. He's waiting with outstretched arms. He loves you. He gave his life for you. He went to a wicked and cruel Roman cross for you. He paid the debt for you. Come to him. It's free. You say, Chad, it can't be that good. That's just too good to be true. No, it's so good it's got to be true. And if your gospel is not that gospel, it's no gospel. It's no gospel. It's poison. And it will eternally kill your soul. And you'll find yourself in a place called hell. Because one drop of works, one drop of dependence on you with faith in Jesus Christ Will forever damn you! I mean, that's a real deal. That word's a real. It, it happens to souls who die without Christ. They are damned. They are cursed in an awful place, away from the presence of God, where God's presence will never be. And it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Would you run to Jesus today? Christian friend, if you're drinking out of this bottle, quit. And if you see others drinking out of this bottle, grab the bottle, mouth off like Paul did to Peter, call them out, and stop the poison. The purpose of the law was never the way of salvation law was intended to drive us to God's promise of grace and forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ and through Him alone. Let's pray together.